Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is September twenty first, two thousand sixteen, and this is episode eighteen seventy five of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it's Wednesday, so we have our interview show of the week. This week, our interview guest is Jordan Reed. He is the the uh, pack leader, I will call him, of the Mongrel Horde. What is the Mongrel Horde? Well, he's the only human member of the Mongrel Horde. The Mongrel Horde is what it sounds like. It is a horde of doggies, yes, uh, feists and rat terriers who do the work of destroying and dismantling Rattus Norregis, Yes, the rat. So we're going to talk about rodent control on the farm and homestead today with a guy that has a, a hobby business, I guess we'd call it, of eliminating these guys with dogs and doing more than just that, dealing with the entire infrastructure management thing that causes the rats to be a problem in the first place. We'll also talk a little bit about uh, basic dog training and dealing with you know teaching your dogs to... Uh, to be around livestock without eating your livestock and, and other things like that. We'll do all that. In just a, with that, let's Let go ahead and hear from our two sponsors. Do you have a favorite knife, a special knife, one you may hand down to a son or a daughter? How cool would it be if you had such a knife that you actually made yourself? With KnifeKits.com as your partner, you can do it. Check out the hundreds of options they have along with all the help you would need from books and DVDs to develop the skill of knife making. You can learn more at KnifeKits.com. Hey guys, as many of you know, I used to be a business and marketing consultant in my former life. And the advice I gave most business owners every day was, do what you say and say what you do. Well, ready-made resources figured that out on their own. All the resources from food storage to gardening to guns to alternative energy, ready-made and ready to go for your prepping needs. Check out ReadyMadeResources.com to learn more today. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1875 because the episode's 1875. Alex Shrugged has two for us today. We have civil rights rhetoric that lacks reality and a friendly act of insurance. We also have, in other news, Mary, Mayor, Mary Baker Eddy founds the Christian Science. She believes that sickness is an illusion conquered through prayer. She will begin the publication of the Christian Science Monitor in 1908. Nestle milk chocolate bars are born. Daniel Peter adds Hen Henry Nestle's powdered milk to the recipe. Henry makes baby food, but in three years, he and Daniel will be selling a lot of candy bars The first ice hockey game is played indoors on purpose. It takes place in Victoria Skating Rink in Montreal, Canada. And born this year are Walter Chrysler, J.C. Penney, Carl Young, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and uh, I guess I should tell you who those are. Walter Chrysler, the automaker, J.C. Penney, the department store founder, Carl Jung is, of course, the psychiatrist that came up with the uh, personality types. And Edgar Rice Burroughs is author of Tarzan, me Tarzan Eugenius, and John Carter on Mars. Uh, the one I'm going to read for you guys today is Civil Rights Rhetoric That Lacks Reality. The U.S. Congress passes a law banning racial discrimination in all public and private facilities. This allows access to theaters. Public transportation allows ex-slaves to sit on juries. The bill is signed into law by President Grant, but it has been kicking around Congress for the last five years or so. The vice president has cast a tie-breaking vote in Senate. It finally passes in the House. It's been slow going as Southern Democrats are being voted back into office, replacing many Republicans, including black Republicans. This is a consequence of a loss in faith of Republicans. 
The Grant administration has proven extremely corrupt. Although President Grant himself appears to be impeccably honest, that is probably his weak point. He was a general and hasn't been able to make the transition to politician. This will be his la the last of the civil rights enacted into the Civil Rights Act of 1957, where all the laws they passed in 1875 will be passed again with equal effect. The problem is enforcement. The federal government has only limited authority to enforce federal law within the states, at least. Anyone who will believe that is true until they stop believing it. That will make several more generations of systematic forgetting of the Constitution, in part thanks to our educational system, which teaches students to read and write, but not how to think critically about what they are reading or writing or watching. My take by Alex Shrug. The Civil Rights Act of 1875 was eventually ruled unconstitutional. Apparently the federal government was acting like a benevolent dictator again. In an emergency, the Romans would appoint a dictator with limited powers to make things happen. In a sense, we have that system today when the Congress grants power to the president to make things happen in the name of goodness and beauty. But when things go bad, they are, they are, when things, when good things are made possible, the struggle of a pen, bad things are made possible as well. The old pro proverb goes, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. The good comes first, it turns to hell later. In, 18, in 1984, Thomas Sowell wrote, Civil rights, rhetoric or reality, he analyzed the Civil Rights Act and intended to do and whether it actually did it. For the most part, the law succeeded in its execution but failed in intention. The intent was to help black people or African Americans achieve equal prosperity with whites. The impediment to that goal was seen as racial prejudice, but the statistics don't bear that out. Certainly racial prejudice kept people from getting certain jobs, but the block point was already being overwhelmed by a change in attitude at the local level. The law reflected that change. The law didn't create it. As it turned out, the Civil Rights Act of the 1860s actually impeded progress. We can debate why that was so, but generally speaking, by the time government shows up to help you out of your hole, you'll be so deep in, they'll just fill the hole in. In other words, the metrics clearly demonstrate the government programming is failing. They won't change the program. They'll stop tracking the metrics. Yeah, definitely. Um, here's how I kind of feel about the original Civil Rights Act of 1875. This is the mistake that was made with it. It affected public and private, and that was the problem. And that gave it ammunition to be seen as unconstitutional, because as far as I'm concerned, it still is. If I run a restaurant that's my restaurant, and in my restaurant I own it, it's not being paid for with a dime of public money, and I'm a bigot, and I only want to sell uh, to... Um, Black females. I only can cater to black females, and nobody else can come in my restaurant. I should have every right to do that. The market should have every right to punish me. It absolutely should. I want to serve only to white males. I should be able to do that too. And if the market wants to punish me, it should punish me. What private individuals do with their resources and their property and 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 their world should have no business to government whatsoever. If we're to have a government, they should. No. And, and people say, but that's discrimination. Yes, of course it is. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying that it, it, I should have no obligation as a business owner to serve anybody. I should have, I, for any reason whatsoever, I should be able to say, no, I'm not going to serve you. And no, you're not allowed on my property. If I'm running a, a business, how, how different is that really if it's a private business paid for with private money from my house? I should have to let you in my house. I can let as many people in my house as I want to, but not you. I don't want you here. Why? I don't know. Your nose is too big. I don't let anybody in my house with a big nose. It's it's stupid, but it's my right because it's my property. 
What, what the government was unwilling to do was single itself out in this and say that we're not allowed to discriminate. And, and some of the greatest discrimination that occurred going forward was by government. Now, it would have been interesting as a showdown in the Supreme Court had the, the, the Civil Rights Act of 1875 not, not at all affected private uh, businesses and what have you, but it affected all public, including state public. So now, because there would have been a different discussion. It's almost as if, it's almost as if it was designed to fail. Where have we heard that before? My take by Jack Spierko. With that, let's get into the main topic of today's show. And I want to say with that, hey, Jordan, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Man, I'm glad to have you on. I've seen some of your stuff on our uh, Facebook Regenerative Agriculture page and all with uh, your dogs just tearing up the rats, and that's what we're here to talk about. But before we get into that, just so the audience can kind of connect with you, can you kind of tell people, like, you know, what do you want to be when you were growing up? What have you done professionally? How, how the heck do you get into a point where what what you do for a living is take rat uh, dogs out to kill rats? Well, it's a multi-part question, and I'll probably talk your ear off, unfortunately. But I'm actually a sheep shearer by trade. And I grew up in the, the South in the real religious community and was more involved in traditional stuff like truck driving, selling RVs, and kind of uh, more traditional things before I got pretty tired of it and fell back into agriculture. Gotcha. And uh, you do what you call traditional rat catching. I didn't know there was a traditional method of catching rats. So what is the traditional rat catching method? Well... Prior to World War One, when large-scale kind of chemical production went into effect for munitions and then also farming fertilizers after the war effort in an effort to continue using the, the raw materials, rats were always controlled through much less technical methods, you know, really hands-on, down and dirty. Um, and the tradition of a rat catcher is a pretty pretty old one. There's multiple famous historic um, icons, and one of them is named Jack Black, who is actually rat catcher to uh, the Queen of England. Um, there's a lot of historical references for these kind of things. So when we talk about traditional methods, um, we're talking about using dogs on a farm in lieu of a chemical poison. Um and the manual labor that that entails to actually physically find the rats and, and get to them. You had some stuff in your uh, your application to be on the show that talked about how this is something important for uh, organic farmers and natural farmers because of the, 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 the concept, if you use a toxin like a rat poison, how it affects other animals, how it affects predators, and how it's in your production area, basically. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, no problem. There's, you know, there's a, a, a lot of different products out there on the market. Um, in, in California, obviously, where I'm located now, um, just banned some of the really nasty ones in July of last year. So they took them off product shelves in your feed stores, in your pet stores where, you know, your Home Depot, where you could get some of the really nasty anticoagulants. Um, the effects of these anticoagulants, for the most part, really trickles down because the rat dies, um, and it's not a painful or pretty death either, or a painless or pretty death. It's pretty gnarly. But the the toxin stays in the body, and it's even proved that it can wash down into the water table as well, where large amounts of this are used. So what happens is you have a rat that, 
that's died, it might even be a mummified carcass, or it might be a suffering rat that's weak and wounded, and pretty much anything in the environment is going to come along and pick that up. So a hawk, an owl, a fox, a coyote, um, all of that stuff gets the full trickle-down effect because it's cumulative in the body of the rat. So out here on a certified organic farm, and obviously um, I'm not trying to promote anything, but you know, a certified organic dairy farm trying to stay in business, a small family farm of, let's say, 150 cows, you know, they may have been using poison since their grandfather started the farm, and now they've switched over to organics in an effort to stay alive and keep farming as a family, and it's now it's against the rules for them to use poison because mm-hmm. it's against the organic certification. And so this guy that's been in farming for a couple of generations all of a sudden no longer has a clear idea of how to deal with the rat problem that's you know, causal to the food and grain that he's feeding the cows. So, you know, we get to work hand in hand with some of these guys um, because they don't really have any other solutions. I got you. Yeah, I mean, another thing that's always bothered me, so I had this this old cat that, you know, we're a small farm. We're three acres. We don't have the type of infrastructure that you can end up with. I've seen some of your kill photos. It's pretty amazing how many uh, rats end up in these places. But uh, when this old cat died of old age, all of a sudden we started having rodent problems, and I started looking for a solution. And, um, you know, I, I talked to people, and they always recommended these these poisons like Tomcat and stuff like that. And I just look at that stuff, and I think of my dogs and think, you know, my, if my dog Charlie eats a rat, you know, what basically not poisoned my dog and it made me sick to my stomach. And I, I was like, I don't want that on my property. And yet you still have to try to figure out how to deal with this problem. And and I think part of what made it so much of a punch in the gut for me is many years ago, I had a cat that I, I, I believe a, a really screwed up neighbor uh, fed um, antifreeze to back before they bittered it. And uh, that was like you mentioned, a very horrible death. And all I can think of is one of my, my animals dying that way. That's trusted me to its care and I, I, there was no way I could possibly bring poison onto my property. So I think it's bigger than just the predators. It's also, you know, your own livestock, your own animals. If, if, you, if a dog finds a rat laying dead, he's likely to eat it. Well, I, I didn't mention this, but one of the reasons that I started this, because um, I'm trying not to, not to go on and on and on with my southern way, uh, is because the fact I had a dog poisoned by rat poison and I watched it seizure for three days. So I had a dog poisoned firsthand and got to experience that. And that's one of the reasons I started seriously looking into this. And it wasn't me using poison. I don't know where it came from, but the dog come in contact with the poison. And I had no firsthand knowledge of, you know, basically once the poison's in the system, the vet can't do anything. There's no antidote. There's no cure. And although the dog did survive, uh, it had a permanent heart issue and, you know, the experience overall was there has to be a better way there or uh, there has to be a safer way. There has to be a more traditional way. Um, You know, how how are farmers, you know, doing this before and and what have you. So can you take us through what's actually happening when you take your uh, you call it your mongrel horde in and, and you work a farm? So, uh, you know, more than just taking dogs to a farm, um, you know, it's pretty easy to see a picture, but all of those pictures are backed by about four hours of hard labor. Sure. Um, that's about the maximum output that both me and the dogs can do. 
Um, a lot of times we're going to a site, and pretty much everywhere we go has visible rats. Um, so you can call me up and say, hey, I've got some rat poo. I think there's a million rats. I have a rat under my house. I hear a rat. I'm not going to come out there. I got um, I'm coming out where you're seeing visible daily rats, and basically the amount of animals and food source guarantees how much rats there's going to be for me. Um, so, you know, we show up on a farm, and a lot of times we're coming the very first time just to check out the situation, and we, we definitely do uh, hunting the first time that we come out there. But, you know, we're looking at a situation not just from a dog standpoint, but using my entire agricultural background of raising poultry, of building poultry coops, of visiting hundreds and hundreds of farms at this point, at killing thousands and thousands of rats. And we're saying, this is the reason you have the rats. This is the management issue. This is the causal effect. Um, and we're trying to correct that. Sometimes that's coop design. A lot of times for your small homestead farmers, that's just no idea you know, four years into chickens, they had no idea that just putting 50 pounds of feed out in a feeder a week was going to attract rats. So telling them they've got to control their feed, telling them they've got to buy a rat-proof chicken feeder. Um, sometimes it's it's lifting a chicken coop off the ground because the design of the coop lays it. And essentially the dogs in this are a management tool for dealing with the infestation level stage of the the management practice. So, you know, they're showing us where the rats actually are located, um, if it's not obvious. Like a bird dog, visibly through their body language, in my experience with the dogs, I know what they're saying in terms of how fresh the rat activity is. And a, a lot of it's trenching. So we do an incredible amount of trenching and an, an incredible amount of farm cleanup. Um, lifting piles of wood off the ground, lifting irrigation pipes off the ground, telling people to clean this up. Like, oh, did you notice your feed silos leaking? You know, that's the reason you had a big, why don't we call a welder? Why don't we get this fixed? Exactly. I mean, it makes sense to me. Um, now, when when you look at that, there's probably some real challenges that you face in, in getting things done because your guy calls you to come up out there and kill the rats. Well, you can kill you know, a thousand rats on, on a larger farm and you're still going to have a problem if those, those issues aren't corrected. So other is, you know, with that and are there other challenges that you face in being able to actually get the job done? Well, uh, one of the big challenges, sometimes the infrastructure itself just doesn't allow for, for the necessary work. So, you know, sometimes the rats are so dug in, I mean, or let's just say the person's emotionally invested in this beautiful chicken coop, but poor design for rat management, and they're not going to allow me to take out the floor to get to the rats because they spent too much time and energy. Um, there's a lot of people that think the dogs, you just go out there with your whistle, so the dogs catch a couple rats, retrieve them, and drop them in your bucket, and don't really realize this is a, like a full-on work day where we're looking for the source and rooting it out. Um, one of the big challenges is people that just don't believe it's real. Um, and I know that sounds kind of silly, but, um, we're kind of so far removed from this being a method that people use that there's people that don't actually think that we know what we're doing, despite the experience that we carry, um, 
with us. And then there's some people that want you to just do nasty, dirty work. They don't clean up their garbage, and they want me to come with my dogs and go through their garbage. So you have kind of these challenges of either farm situations that don't work, um, and it's the, the infrastructure that's the problem, and people that don't want you to do the work necessary to actually deal with the problem. And those people, I'm not ever going to go back to their site again. We call that firing customers, and it's a good business practice. There's customers you can't serve, or there's customers you really don't want to serve, and, and every one of those type of customers you keep actually impacts your ability to serve the customers that qualify for your time and deserve your time. Yeah, and I don't I don't go anywhere that the animals aren't taken care of as well. So if I see yeah. really poorly taking care care of animals and the animals are in bad shape and they're not making any effort to to take care of their critters, I mean you don't have to have a lot of money to take care of your critters, but if your critters aren't being fed and watered well and that kind of stuff, I won't go and help you with your problem until you take care of your animals first. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I it, it it baffles me sometimes the abuse I see livestock and and pets both go through. Um, for you, is this a business model? Is it a hobby? Is it a hobby business? I mean, how would you quantify the 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 the, the overall model that you have? Well, that's a fair question. Um, the way that I like to term it is a low cost farm service. So I mentioned at the very beginning my actual trade. Um, although I have a background in a lot of um, agriculture, is I'm a sheep shearer, and that's what actually pays the bills. Okay. Um, so that's seasonal, uh, and it also leaves uh, you know quite a bit of free time. Um, one of the best things about that job, let me tie it into what we're talking about, is the fact that I get to bring my dogs with me to farms. So my actual job that pays the bills also allows me to take my dogs pretty much everywhere that I go. Um, so this is something that I'm really passionate about. Um, I I run it a little bit like a business in terms of organization and that kind of stuff, but I charge a really low amount of money for what I'm doing. So to have me come out for a site visit um, is typically about 100 to $150 and a box of beer for three to four hours. So for what I'm providing, and if I catch more than 200 rats, it's free. Um <laughs> Because that means it's a lot of fun. Um, wow! So I, I'm I trying to, if I catch more than 200 rats, it's it's, it's an extra an extra box of beer. <laughs> well, that, yeah, I should do that, shouldn't I? Yeah. But it's it, it's you know basically what I'm looking to do is work with people that I enjoy, that are passionate about keeping poison off their farms, that are a pleasure to be around, and keep it affordable that they can have me out there seasonally or until the infestation level of in. Of, of rodents is under control and the management practices have, have been wiggled to deal with that effect. So I'm trying to keep it affordable. Um, and if I, you know, if I want to make money at it or I need a little bit of extra bucks, I'll schedule three hunts in one day. Gotcha. But I'm not, um, it would require too much dogs and, you know, difficulty to, to actually make it a business. It's it's expensive to keep and maintain the dogs. And, you know, there's a few guys with similar professional pest control businesses that do use dogs. They're about $400 an hour yeah. um, with, you know, with the licensing and insurance. And, you know, they're working mostly at industrial locations and places where they don't actually come, where 12 rats is a really exciting time for them. Um, 
I, I think I'm more in terms of this is really a crazy, silly passion of mine that I've, I've kind of structured as a business in order to get me to new places. Tell us about your dogs. Like, are they uh, a feist or, I mean, what kind of dog are they? Are they rat terriers? Are they a mixed breed? And, and what else do they do on a farm other than just kill rats? Well, I'm a little bit cagey about answer, answering too many personal questions about my dogs just because of pet ownerships and Annie Hunters, but it's a fair place and a fair time. So I have a couple of rat terriers. Um, I have a couple of feists. I keep four dogs usually and one puppy, um, and that's my full, you know, accoutrement. You kind of have to work a dog up um, slowly over a couple years before it really gets the hang of what's going on. Uh, and that takes some time, so you kind of always have to be bringing in a young one. Um, I like the rat terriers and feists a lot, but it's really hard to find them out here on the West Coast that are any good. Um, and a lot of them are too big, so I need pretty small dogs. Sure. Um, and I've been through a lot of dogs, so if I raise up a puppy or a dog, then it doesn't work for me. A lot of times, just let's just say personality difference, then I'll give it to one of those farms that has those rat problems that we talked about and the dog i just give them the dog and then they've got a full time and i don't have to worry about the dog being in the home or a place where it shouldn't and you can imagine i've cultivated more than enough places that people are begging for those kind of deals oh absolutely because i i'm impressed with it and i'll I'll tell you why the reason and maybe later in the show i'll tell you what we've done here as far as control in addition to good management practices is I have two dogs, and one's useless for this. He's a 150-pound German Shepherd. And I have another one whose heart is in it. He's a uh, he's a cross-breed uh, uh, pit bull cross with a German pointer. I might have the only one of those in the world, I guess, other than maybe his brothers and sisters. Um, but he's a rat killer, but he's also uh, pulled the insulation out of the wall to get to the rat killer. He's a ripped the drain pipe off the side of the house to get to the rat killer. He's a, whatever's in the way, I will demolish it to get to the rat, uh, to the point one time I had to patch his nose up because he shoved his nose so far up a drain pipe trying to get a rat out of it, he scraped his nose up, and being the pit in him, he has very little, uh, it's a pretty high pain threshold, he'll, he'll, he'll put himself through a lot. So to me, the small thing obviously helps a lot, but one of my big challenges in dealing with the, the, the limited rodent problem we had here was the dog actually doing more damage to the infrastructure than successfully killing a rat. If the rat's in the open, it's dead. But so you must have to build some level of discipline into those dogs that they know there's a there's a there's a, a stopping point not to tear something apart. Oh, I, I hate to disappoint you. Oh okay. <laughs> I hate to disappoint you. It's me you have to be worried about taking pickaxes to the walls. Okay. Um if I'm allowed, can I go back and finish the previous question? Yeah, yeah. So one of the things that I did when I started this was I just started with average dogs. And I'm not trying to say my dogs are more special or I'm special and better than anybody else. I just started with regular dogs, and I've been at this a while. And the longer and longer I do this and the more I enjoy this, the more that I've gone from what I would call like a good all-around farm dog to really, really performance hunters, which is what you're describing. So the the dogs that I currently have are several notches in energy and drive from dogs that even in the same breed that people would have in their yards. 
um, because I need a consistent three hours of really, really high output at every location that we go to, sometimes two in a day, sometimes three in a day. Um, and I also have a, a Yog Yak Jag Terrier and a Patterdale Terrier, um, as well as I've worked with a lot of different cross dogs. So I've worked pretty much with any breed that shows any interest, um, including pound and rescue dogs that show interest in catching rats. Um, trying to answer the question that you just asked, uh, which is what actually goes into the training of the dogs. And one of those things, which is not necessarily thought about a lot, is the socialization with livestock. So the dogs have to be continually brought around chickens and rabbits and guineas and geese and peacocks and sheep and goats and cows and horses and pigs and all of the above. So a lot of the work that we're doing in discipline that we're instilling in the dogs is actually being focused on what we're doing and being efficient at it around all of these distractions. So it's not just kind of willy-nilly so much as it is actually focusing the dog's attention where it needs to be focused to be most effective. And training and conditioning have a lot to do to do with that. Uh, the handler plays a big part in this as, as well. Um, and, and being able to focus the dogs efficiently to do their job. No, that makes sense to me. I mean, my, my goal with my animals here is that the ducks, the geese, the turkeys, they're just other animals that live here and you should ignore them, right? And, and that, that's a challenge. That's a, a challenge for people. And I think sometimes people look at, like, I, I got a pit bull cross with a bird dog and, you know, a, a duck walking underneath him like he's not there. And, like, how do you do that? That takes a lot of work and a lot of training. But in your instance, you've got a dog, well, you've got a team of dogs that are working like an operational unit that have to be, when the chicken runs by, they have to just, that's not why we're here. And that's that's challenging because the canine brain, this, this jerky-looking thing just went by, and there's a part of the canine brain that says, that's that's dinner. I want to, I want to get that. So it, it has to require a great deal of training and discipline. And I think that's probably part of why it's so beneficial, your model, where you have like, four working dogs and this pup that's coming up. So you've kind of got like a pack teaching the dog, not just you. That's the goal. That's the goal. And certainly when we're working on site um, in terms of what are the limits of what we're allowed to do, uh, that's the reason I require the property owner to be on site to, uh, to limit either me or the dogs to uh, what we're actually allowed to do to the infrastructure to deal with the rats. Gotcha. I mean, I'll tell you what I eventually did. So I didn't really have much of a problem until the, the old cat passed away. And I knew a lot of people kind of had issues with the whole outdoor cat idea. So I went on a Internet board that's for our local neighborhood and said, I'm looking for some outdoor cats. I know some people don't like that, so I want you to know how they're going to live. And uh, we found two kittens that were about two and a half months old maybe. Um, that were like a, a mile away living under somebody's trailer with a like a stray mom cat. And uh, so we went, we got them, we brought them here, we fixed them, we brought them up on farm. They live outside, that's their job. And we've seen a dramatic reduction in the number of rodent incidents. And we've had a lot less dog tearing the you know infrastructure apart. And I went that route because to me, for a small farm like mine, the cat has patience. The cat will see a rat go in a hole and the cat will sit there and set up camp and wait. 
And the other thing that I've found that they do, at least it seems to me, is a lot like how chickens break fruit fly cycles. Once they hone in and figure out there is a nest somewhere, they'll go in and they'll eat all the young, and they break the breeding cycle. So I, I don't know that that works on a larger farm, but I know that here for this kind of small, you know, tiny acreage type situation, it's worked really well. And I mean other things like, you know, we store our, our feed in metal cans with the lids on. We only feed as much as the birds eat a day. Things like that. We've removed, you know, option uh, stuff that was like junk laying around from the last place where they could nest. But it, it did take that holistic approach. I, I don't think if we just threw the cats here, it would have been enough. No, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting problem. I mean, we we get a lot of feedback from cat people, and you know, any poultry that you grow that you enter into and and look at the posts, anybody that asks about rats, everybody talks about cats. And every single farm that I've been to is full of cats. In fact, I've got a couple of here specifically for training the dogs so that my dogs don't kill cats. Sure. Um, and while they can be effective, they certainly bring their own problems, um, you know, songbirds being one of them. Um, one of the other things that I've seen is we're specifically targeting Norway rats. Um, of the two species, they're the larger and more aggressive, and they're the burrowing ones. Uh, although we do deal with both species of rat, the, the ratus ratus and the ratus norvegicus, um, the What's attracted to the grain is typically the ratus norvegicus or the Norway rat, your sewer rat, wharf rat, real big, real big guys. And I've rarely seen a cat ever come close to touching an adult breeder size rat. And some of these guys, we're talking about weighing more than 1.3 pounds. Um, so while they're able to effectively manage the young and the juveniles, actually dealing with the big aggressive adults sometimes requires a little bit more firepower um, than a good cat. Um, I know this is kind of silly, but it also seems to me like in feral and barn cats that you've got this whole show world of cats where all these people breed these real funny, really expensive cats. But then on the other side, the bottom of the barrel is all the cats that are breeding, which are all the inbred, mangy, yucky ones, and it's really hard to find a good bred farm cat. No, I think that's valid. I think it's completely valid. I, I think we were kind of lucky. The uh, the male that we have is just a beast. I mean, th this cat is like about 16 pounds, and he is just a freaking beast. But, like, that's dumb luck. I don't know where – like, it, if somebody said, where it, do I get another cat like that? I, I don't know. It, it, that's the problem. So where do you find – you know, you might get four or five cats, and if you're lucky, one of them hunts and will catch rats or rodents. But – um you know, certainly your approach works, and, and my dogs, we're not dealing with mice um, yeah. and small rodents. Certainly here in California, we've got the pocket gopher, which is an exceptional digger. Um, the dogs can't dig them up. They're just, they're, they dig too fast and too deep. But a can, uh, ambush predator is able to catch them effectively where my dog's kind of blunt force trauma approach <laughs> is overkill. Um, so... I, I certainly am advocating the, the whole approach, and cats are part of that, but usually not at the infestation level. How did you find out about this whole school of thought, I mean, to get to where you are with it today? I mean, like, did you have a mentor? Is it something you discovered and, and self-taught? How, how did you end up here? I wish I had a mentor, and I would give almost anything for a mentor. Um, 
my interest in farming after I left a more commercial work world. Uh, basically, I got involved with homestead farmers, especially some of the really old kind of grandmother figures that I found at the farmer's markets and started getting involved in internships. Um, and I did internships on some goat dairies and uh, no machinery, all hand tool farm, on traditional row crop vegetable farms, uh, a wide range of agriculture. Uh, one of my personal interests is with growing poultry, um, and it still is, only I live in a very small urban farm um, and don't have a lot of room for it. But I've grown a lot of turkey, turkeys, guineas, ducks, geese. I've helped a lot of farmers that are at the farmer's market selling vegetables and want to add like an egg production, and so they want to build a chicken coop and, you know, get 50 to 75 birds and have enough eggs to supplement their income during the winter kind of deal. And a lot of these people were grandmother-type figures where one of the things they just need help with is just manual labor. And, you know, I had one of my little farm dogs that I started with in the very beginning, and I'm doing the trapping and pellet guns, and the farmer at this point was putting out poison, and, you know, this was the very first time that I ever saw this in motion, and I'm cleaning out a chicken coop with my little dog, and the rat runs out, and the dog grabs it, and I caught three rats in a matter of 20 minutes, where out there with my pellet gun, I was sitting for four hours to catch three rats, sure. and I might have caught three rats in a month with my trap, and it was actually a progression of over two years from one dog to three dogs working on that one particular farm one or two days a week that I taught myself how to use dogs at least on that farm to catch rats and then started taking that skill out to friends' farms, begging people to allow me to visit their farms um, in, in that first early period of kind of learning methods. I've spent a lot of time talking to guys in the U.K., where there's not big game hunting and their only sport and as they're the traditional birthplace of terriers, they still have a lot of this in motion. You can't go hunt a bear or a deer or a pig and, you know, rabbits and rats are kind of the only legal hunting for the working class guy. And so it, it's still pretty common over there. And I had to spend a lot of time talking to them, trying to find out methods, um, and just going out and doing it and visiting places and looking at chicken coops and breaking shovels, among other things. Finding a good shovel is the hard part of this whole deal. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the Rogue Hoe? I haven't. The Rogue Hoe. You're, you're going to love me for this. Every every person I meet that's bought one has said that, that like the most valuable recommendation I've ever given tools is this 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 device called a road call. They make they make little light ones for gardens, but they also make really big heavy duty uh, ones. You can get them either in really heavy hickory or a fiberglass handle. And they they started out as they were manufacturing tools to be used for people that were doing like basically forest firefighting, and then they got they started being used by people that were making in wood trails. And they are 
absolutely, if you want to tear something apart or pull something apart, they're what you need. Um, so you can just check it out after the show, and I'll have a link for everybody else that hasn't heard me talk about them in the show notes. They're a company I've reached out to a couple times trying to get discounts for my listeners. I've never done it, but they should do it because I think I've sold like thousands of these things for them. Um, but check those out. Good. I'm pretty good with an Italian grape hoe. Uh, that was one of the tools that we used to do all the groundwork on the no-till farm. So I've done a fair amount of hours just with a, uh, the the big square hose, too. But I'll definitely check that out. Yeah, the one, the, the one I like best, I can't remember the name of the pattern, but on one side it's like a big, big old bulldog, you know, flat hoe like you're talking about. But then the other side of it's like a four-tine rake, but it's like, it's like a hoe that was made into a four-tine rake. It is... You'll like it when you see it. We'll we'll move on from there. Um, you kind of mentioned this already, but I have in your notes here. There there are some farms or farmers you just refuse to work with, right? I've been to some farms. Yeah, basically the conditions on the farm or the conditions of the animals. Um, you know, or I don't mind being in contact with rats, but I have little interest in being in contact with household garbage. Mm. Um, and I and I actually want to see, you know, because I'm not directly making a profit off of this, you know, I, I actually want to see them make the management changes and improvements so that they've dealt with the problem, not call up this guy for a hundred bucks and have him deal with my problems. You're you're not looking for someone to call you up once every two months and, and knock the population back. You're looking to be part of somebody's overall management plan. Exactly. I yeah. And that's one reason it can't really be a strong, business structures because I would put myself out of business. You're, you're like a psychologist, but you get people off therapy too fast to make any money at it. Exactly. <laughs> and, I, and I don't have any drugs to peddle. I don't have any drug company kickbacks. Yeah. So um, you mentioned that sometimes you'll give a dog away. Do you have people that come to you and want to buy dogs or, or, or anything? And do you have people that like say, like, can my dogs join the hunt or whatever? And how do you handle that? We get a, we get a lot of interesting stuff. Um, uh People obviously don't see behind the scenes very often, and that's kind of one of the things that we're doing when we do an interview. Um, you know, a lot of people assume I have a big kennel of dogs and don't really understand I, I don't do that. Um, the other thing is is these kind of dogs, the more, as I mentioned earlier, the more I started with regular farm dogs and then kind of got into the professional athletes of the genre in this particular case rat catching the more and more they're not for inexperienced owners um you know what you might see me be able to do with the dogs in public and manage and control and maintain the dog's function and in motion an uh, inexperienced owner especially with a really high drive terrier is not going to do that so i'm not a breeding kennel i if i breed dogs it's because me or one of my best buddies needs a new dog, and we need to raise the puppy up. Uh, but we're not breeding, and dogs aren't for sale. Uh, I don't have any problem with people breeding dogs and doing selling dogs. It's not my personal interest. Um, they're my they're my passion. Uh, they're not my ATM machines. No, um, I get it. I get it. I also so think like, we, people don't get the the energy level. Like I have a friend named Chris Starr that he one of his many things he does is he does falconry. And he hunts with a falcon and a dog. And I can't remember the dog's exact breed, but it's some sort of rat terrier derivative or whatever. And the energy this dog has is preposterous. 
I, I think most people would go crazy trying to deal with this animal. Um, I actually had to ask him to stop bringing him to like my events and stuff because he was driving my dogs crazy. Because it would be 2 o'clock in the morning, we're still up drinking beer or whatever, and this dog was still going 1,000 miles an hour. Yeah, that's that's how it is. I mean, essentially, the dogs that I own have to be hunted as an outlet for their energy. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you can't walk them on a leash. Um, so we do get a lot of people that are interested in dogs and a lot of people that want to buy dogs and sell dogs. There's a lot of people that, that ask for things like, can I buy a fully trained dog from you that doesn't chase chickens but kills rats? Um, kind of just real separation from what dog ownership is and what managing dogs are. Um, and we do get a lot of people that ask us about bringing dogs along on the hunt. Um, kind of my stock reply is that the people that bring their dogs on hunts with me are either close personal friends or they're actual farmers that have a problem. And I found them a dog or helped them find a dog, and they're bringing the dogs with me on a hunt so that they're actually learning the techniques, handling, management, and dog skills to actually take that back home to their own farm so that they're not relying upon me. So, you know, we're, we're not working with people that just want to do this for fun. The people that actually do end up going with us are people that actually need the skills that they're learning when they're with us. Yeah, I got you. I, I, it makes complete sense to me. I mean, if I had you coming here, the first thing I would do is put my dogs away. Um, that's the, and, that's the first thing I require is if yeah. you, before I let my dogs out of my car, your dogs all have to be put up. Yeah, and it's not because I, my dogs are very good about being introduced to, to other people's dogs. It's not going to be a fight or anything, but if your dogs are going to be running around a 1,000 miles an hour chasing rats, my dogs are going to be nothing but in the way. One of my dogs is old. The other dog's going to get hurt. You don't need to be responsible for my animals while you're doing your job. That's kind of the way I look at it. The other flip side of the coin as well is the fact that most people have never taken the dog time for their dogs to be around poultry or on a farm. So they're like, oh, I know my dogs is going to kill a rat, but it's like, have you ever been on a farm in your life? Do you realize I'm inside of the chicken coop and I'm inside of the yeah. calf barn? And, you know, you kind of see that little mental light bulb go off like, oh, yeah, my dog wants to kill chickens. Like, it's not really much use to me then. Just so we can be more broad, because you're a guy that works with dogs, and dogs are dogs to a degree, can you talk to people a little bit about how you teach a dog not to do that? Because it's one of the biggest questions I get, like, how come your dog will stand there at the, the, the coop when the birds come flying past them and not even turn his head? He doesn't care. And I've, I've kind of taught the audience that before, but I think sometimes when they hear it from a different angle or a different method, maybe it's more useful to them. Because I have a lot of people that say, I can't keep my dog from chasing my fill-in-the-blank. Well, it's a, it, the first step is I'm raising the dogs to do this, not training them. Um, and I'm doing it through socialization. The only thing I have to use an electronic collar for is deer, which are a separate issue. Um, but for the, for the poultry and, and the domestic animals, you have to keep your dog under control. And so people say, I can't stop my dog from chasing chickens. Well, what's it doing? It's just running around loose. So why is your dog running around loose chasing chickens? All you have to do to stop it is put a leash on it. Yeah. And like, well, I never thought about that. Yeah. So as a puppy, I've got a little chicken coop. Um, I'm on exactly a tenth of an acre right now, although we're in transition. Um, I've got some meat rabbits, some pigeons, some doves. Um 
and and the puppy is going inside that coop with me on a leash for chore time every day. And I'm clipping him to the fence, and I'm clipping him to the door, and I'm clipping him to a rabbit kennel so that he gets to be around the chickens, but he never gets to be in reach. And once he starts sniffing poop and he stops staring at chickens, I'm going to let him drag the leash around the little coop. You know, and any time he goes for a chicken or shows too much interest, I'm going to stop him, whether that's jerking the leash, whether that's yelling, whether that's taking a stick and whacking the ground near him. Sometimes that's picking him up by the scruff of the neck and shaking him. It's basically interrupting the cycle. Um, and once he's good off, once he's good dragging the leash and I know he's just not going to tear after one, I can start bringing him in on the leash. Um, also, basic obedience is really important where I bring my dogs into the chicken coop and teach them to sit. So they're focused on me and a training skill and learning something in a treat um, instead of focused on the chicken, which could be the exciting flip side if they're bored. Um, uh, another big component in all of this is proper exercise. Ninety percent of dog behavior problems are the result of not enough exercise. So in an urban environment, I've got these guys pulling me on my long skateboard, you know, a couple miles a day, actually running their energy out or set up on my bicycle with the little, you know, leashes that hook onto the main frame of the bike so my hands aren't involved. And I'm actually able to exercise them. And well-exercised dogs are good-behaved dogs. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's a basic, you know, find an outlet for the energy and then desensitize the exotic nature of this weird thing. It's just that thing lives here, too. It's part of it, – it's a little bit of a pack mentality. And when people say they can't, it's like, well, maybe you can't, but you could. It's kind of how I feel because, you know, I mentioned the cats. I have two cats that I've got video of baby ducks walking past them. And if you can do that with a cat – then to me it's much easier to do with a dog. And the, and the cats were kittens when they came here, and they were desensitized, and they were fe- received various forms of negative feedback whenever they act predatory around those animals. So now they kind of see like, okay, this is this is where I live, and these are all the things around me that live here too. And then any foreign you know any foreign enemy that's that's prey. And when I when I first did this and brought these animals here, there was an uproar about it on my YouTube channel. There's no way you can do that. And again, I think if it works with a cat, it certainly works with a dog. And I, I will say, I do believe it's easier if you start with them as young as possible, because if you if you do that, you're you're bringing them into contact when they really couldn't do that much to begin with. And I think if I remember right, I remember talking to a guy that that raised like you know wolf hybrids. And it, the way he got those to be docile animals as adults, which I think is probably a bad idea anyway, but the psychology works, was if that animal sees itself as small and in your hand and under your care, on some level it almost always sees itself that way. you know. And I, I think there's maybe something to that as well. Just not allowing them, tying a string to your dog, a old bailing twine, some way of controlling the dog is often the simplest solution to a lot of those problems on a farm. And a lot of people just don't want to contain or control the dog at some level. And as a result, it has free run. They can't stop it from chasing once, you know, you can't catch it once you start yelling at it, you know, and you kind of have this cycle. And, you know, for me, just being able to control a dog of any age is important. Um, And that's the first start. 
Those, those who are party. kind when they should be cruel will be cruel when they should be kind. So the the, the over the over refusal of discipline young results in yelling and screaming at a dog when it's old and it doesn't have any idea what you're saying, right? It's like it, it doesn't. It, there's a lot of people firsthand that look at me uh, in the way I handle dogs and think I'm really harsh as well, especially the pet ownership. Um, you know, I have no problem picking up dogs by the scruff of the neck and shaking them. I've got no problems with physically intervening when I need to, um, you know, owning multiple adult intact terriers. There's going to be disputes, and there's no asking the dogs to do stuff. I'm demanding the dogs do stuff. So, you know, that plays a part, that plays a part in letting the dogs know, hey, you can't do this, and if I'm going to stop it, I'm going to stop it. And, you know, there's a lot of people afraid to just pick the dog up and shake the heck out of it and say, hey, you're not allowed to chase chickens and you're not allowed to chase cows. Um, And there's a reason for that. Although it might seem harsh on one level, that type of handling means that when I go to the vet for an emergency and my vet draws blood, my dogs don't bite them because they're used to being handled. And if I need to vet my dogs after a hunt because they've sliced themselves up on barbed wire or that kind of stuff that I don't have to worry about my dogs being all snarly and gnarly um, at stuff that's normal and acceptable behavior. So it's, you know, it's kind of one of those things. It might seem harsh on one level, but on another level, it's a form of socialization. It's just handling socialization. No, I, I completely agree with that. Um, can you talk about maybe, is there any dangers to the dogs? I mean, you just mentioned some of the things like they can get cut up. I mean, large rats can be pretty vicious and i mean rabies things like that so a big broad question um and i'll tell you a little story if that's okay sure so this january um i had the unfortunate experience of losing my first dog actually on a hunt um and it was really sad and traumatic uh we were working at an industrial feed site where they mill raw materials and it's actually a certified organic facility as well as handling certified organic uh, material and product. And we actually had a, a liver puncture that turned out to be fatal in a dog during a hunt. Uh, the reason I'm telling this story is because that being on a farm and actually working is dangerous in itself. Um, and it doesn't even necessarily have to do anything with the rats, just being on a farm. It, it only takes one steer. It only takes one horse to stomp or kick a dog, even accidentally um, a pallet to fall and smash a dog, that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of inherent danger that's unremovable. Um, as far as the rats go, um, infection is one of the largest problems that we face. Rabies that isn't actually an issue, although that's one of the most common questions that we hear. Um, as far as I know, there's no known Oh, I'm not sure what you call it. Infections of rabies via a rat in the United States in recorded history. Um, There's there's several of there's several cases cases of rabies via rat in Poland after World War II, but we're talking about you know after whole cities have been burned down and destroyed, kind of thing. Uh, But they're not actually really a carrier for rabies. It's really rare, but that's something that we face a lot. 
what happens is the rats bite and they have really long teeth. So when a, when a dog grabs them, even a skilled dog, the big rats curl up and bite the dog's faces. And their teeth are on an adult rat are about a half an inch long, sometimes longer. Um, so they're actually able to, like, puncture into the sinus cavities, through noses, through ears. Um, although I haven't faced it, a lot of the rat guys in the U.K. tell me, it's really common for them to lose an eye at some point in their life if they're a really productive, hardworking, rat, actual rat-catching dog. Um, and then those, those bites tend to, tend to have little pieces of skin that the chisel point teeth pushed in. Um, and so you have a lot of swelling and kind of abscess-type material um, that can in, infect the dog's faces. Um, we use natural products as often as possible. In fact, I've only given one of my dogs antibiotics once and uh, when it was an infection that went into the lymph nodes. But we use bee propolis. Um, if you're not familiar with beekeeping, it's tree sap that the bees masticate and use to seal the, the hives and make it a, a solid kind of airtight structure. And we tincture that in high alcohol. But like everything a bee masticates, it's got a lot of antifungal, antibacterial, antimicrobial properties, um, and it's a really strong antiseptic as well in conjunction with the high alcohol. So that's actually my first line of defense for dealing with infections and um, that kind of thing. Um, and in just otherwise, you're dealing just with the inherent danger of being on a farm around working animals, machinery, and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. It, it, I mean, it's it, you can get hurt on any given day on a farm. It's just part of the deal. Um, what do you do when you have 200 dead rats in a pile? What do you do with them? Well, at first, um, it was really difficult to find a disposal method. Um, you know, and I usually keep a vulture pile. I've lived at quite a few different rural locations in California before I came to where I am now, and I maintain a vulture pile. But at this point... I've maintained the connections for actually giving them to falconers. Okay. So I've got a network of guys, especially, you know, and when the site is large enough that I, I know there's no poison anywhere on that site or any neighbor close that a rat could get to poison and get it back because the last thing I'd want is to give a poisoned rat to some guy that's got a training his falcon, right? Yeah. So, and they... They love them um, because they have a lot more mineral than farm-raised, um, like Caternix quail and that stuff for the sure. most point. So it's got more mineral content. They take them, they freeze them for a couple of weeks in sub-zero freezers, which kills the bacteria, parasites, and that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I don't know their full method, but I'm pretty sure they, they skin them and clean them because they don't want their raptors starting to hunt rats okay. as a food source in, um, you know, as, after they start recognizing them. So yeah. I think they, they do a little bit of work to clean them up. But, yeah, they're, they're going off to, to raptors. None of the rescue people will work with me. So <laughs> they won't come and pick them up for me or they won't meet me or they won't do any meeting in the middle. So I haven't worked with any rescue groups. Yeah, yeah. I'll, t I'll tell you, if you ever need another outlet – Back in the day, I was a reptile breeder, and uh, I would have I would have done the same thing: freeze them for you know a week, and then feed the snakes. 
Um, that would, that would be, that, that's what I thought you were going to say, because I mean, I was so into it at one point, I used to get, uh, Christmas cards from a place called rodentpro.com. And, uh, when I ended up deciding I didn't want to do that anymore and parceled out my, my animals to various breeders, uh, I actually got a phone call after several months of not placing an order going, did we, did we do something wrong? Did we, did we, and I swear to God, did we lose your business to mice on ice? And I'm like, no. I just not in the business anymore. So, I mean, for a breeder, that's a, it's a significant expense. Yeah, I, I think out here in California as well. I'm not quite sure, but there's, you know, we've got more cage, we've got more laws around chicken and egg production than other places in the United States, and I believe the same is actually for laboratory rats as well. So, for a large size laboratory rat, you're looking about seven to nine dollars a piece out here. Yeah, um, and, and I give it to the falconers. I'm not charging any money for this, but I'm saving them a significant amount of money um, on feed bills, um, you know, which really helps make, a, you know, kind of what I would consider like a not very affordable sport, maybe a little bit more affordable for them to practice, especially when they're, you know, they're using wild caught birds that get released after a season anyways. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So if people want to learn more about you, do you have a website and blog or something like that they can check out? I've got all kinds of stuff. That's the problem. I have a full website. Um, I have a kennel page on Facebook. I have an Instagram, and I also have a YouTube channel. Very cool. I'll make sure there's links to all of that in the uh, show notes today for people to check out. And with that, man, Jordan, I want to say thanks for being with us today. I think that we, uh, we 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 got a lot of great information to the audience, and I, I appreciate the work you're doing. And I think it's something that uh, if more people know about it, maybe more people will do it because – I think that's part of why you were on today. You'd like to see other people doing this because your your area of operations is only going to be so big. I'm basically interested in educating people to the fact that there's an alternative solution to just wholesale use of rodenticide poisons um, because of its effect, you know, in the food chain and in uh, the environment. Very cool, man. Well, again, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. I really enjoyed that interview. I mean, one of the things I'm passionate about is animals in general, especially dogs. My dogs are like family to me. So when I, when I am able to talk to another person that, that takes working with and training his dogs and is care for his dogs and care for animals seriously, it's always great. And I think we learned a lot from each other. And I think you guys probably learned a lot from today's interview. Hope you enjoyed it. With that, if you did enjoy it and you want to support this show, the easiest way to do that is become a member of the Survival Podcast Support Brigade. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members, and for 18.3 cents an episode, you can support our work by becoming a member. That's 5 bucks a month or $50 a year. And if you do that, you're going to get discounts on so many things that you're probably buying anyway. It'll put the money right back in your pocket, and it won't really cost you anything to support us. If you are military and law enforcement or Peace Corps or are a first responder, active duty or prior service, email me with a couple you know, sentences of details of your service, and I'll send you a discount code. Uh, and you can get a discount on the Members Brigade. Uh, to do that, you please send me that email before, not after you join. I'm not being a butthole. I just can't retroactively apply the discount. The software and PayPal do not work that way. Okay? So before, not after you join, everybody else, you pay full price. It's still a great deal. Just go to survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. Uh, next up, I said it's the easiest way, but really the easiest way to support this show is to do all your shopping through uh, tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com, whenever you're shopping on Amazon. 
So if you buy stuff on Amazon, all I'm saying is instead of typing Amazon in, type in tspaz.com, click a link, go to Amazon and do your shopping. Buy whatever you were going to buy anyway on Amazon, and you'll support our show, and it won't cost you anything. It really won't even cost you any time. It won't take any extra time, really, at all, of any significance. Speaking of time, today's Amazon item of the day, the item I have for review on the site today, is something that deals with time and space, and it's certainly not a prepper product at all, but I think it's a product that uh, many of you guys will enjoy reading. It is a book called Biocentrism, How Life and Consciousness Are Keys to Understanding the True Nature of the Universe, It's by Robert Lanza, M.D., and Bob Berman. Robert Lanza is a certified genius. And Bob Berman, though you may not have heard of him, is the most read astronomer in the world. And what they're looking at is questions about life and the universe and creation versus evolution versus design, all of those types of things. And I'm reading this book with a lot of excitement and with quite a bit of skepticism at the same time. And I'm being skeptical because it validates for me very much what I believe. And I believe when we're reading something or investigating something and it tells us what we want to hear, that's when we have to be most skeptical. But there's three principles of physics in this book that I think science, for all its talk of, well, you know, it's just an accident, it was the Big Bang, and everything just happened, and that's just the way it is, and whatever, I think that physics is ignoring these three questions that, that they themselves have created. One is uh, called Heisenberg's Principle of Uncertainty. Yeah, so what is Heisenberg's Principle of Uncertainty? What that means is when we observe a, a subatomic particle in motion, we can see where it's moving and where it's going, right? But we can't see where it is. We can't tell where it is. We can identify its path. If we identify where it is, we can no longer see its path. So think about it like a, a football being thrown through the air. If you, if you see it in motion, and it's moving really fast, it's being thrown very, very fast, like a, it's like a, a, just a, a streak. Well, you know where it was and where it's going, but you can't figure out exactly where it is. Then if you stop it in place, you know where it is, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. Now, with a football, we can actually make that determination. With subatomic particles, we can't. The next one is called the two-hole experiment. This has been done thousands of times. We take subatomic particles again, and we move them through a, a, bar a barricade, and we give it two holes we send one particle. We observe it, and the particle will behave like a particle. It will go through one of the two holes. Nothing earth-shattering there. If we do not observe it, if we fail to observe it, it will behave like a wave and it will pass through both holes. One particle through both holes. Now, what that means is matter is responding to observation to consciousness. Matter is behaving differently because you paid attention to it. Now this is real. This is not anything... A lot of physicists don't like this book, but no physicist will, will object to what I just told you about the two-hole experiment. Here's something radical. This is absolutely radical. If we do the two-hole experiment and we don't observe the particle as it passes through and is given a choice between the two holes, and it does pass as a wave, 
But then immediately after it, we observe it, it will stop being a wave, become a particle, and actually have gone through one of the other holes, one or the other of the holes, retroactively in the past. Our observation in the present will change the past at the subatomic level. Now, that again means that matter is, is, is responding to your observation, to human consciousness, in absence of time. The third is quantum entanglement. Quantum entanglement is where they take two subatomic particles that came from the same atom, and they sent them, this is another experiment that's been replicated, seven miles apart through fiber optic cables. So now they're, far, they're, they're seven miles apart. They manipulate one to, let's say, rotate from top to bottom. The other one immediately begins to rotate. The two particles are inexorably intertwined forever. You could move them across, you know, 50% of the known universe, and they would still do this. There's actually a time lag, even at 186,000 miles per second, speed of light, or C, in e equals mc squared. That speed of light over seven miles, you can measure the, a lag. You can see a, 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 that if you shine a light, there's a time it takes for that light to travel seven miles. It's very fast, but there's still a time that it takes. But yet, these two particles are inexorably intertwined. And there's no delay in their time. Meaning that this matter is communicating across space instantaneously as though the space isn't there at all. Now, physicists say this is stuff that we'll eventually figure out with the theory of everything and whatever, but the, the reality is that the, the, the common denominator in the variable here is your observation. And when you observe it, Matter is behaving differently. You're influencing matter by observing it. And it goes off of that and builds a case that it is the observation of consciousness that has actually created the universe, which sounds crazy. But I invite you to read this book if you have deep questions. And if you are a religious person going, God did it. Well, this doesn't say God didn't do it. This does not say God didn't do it. Maybe God is the consciousness that created the universe. And we are just part of that. But what I, what I really want to point out with you in this, this is kind of freaky, but it's, it, it's the way it's been described. Einstein described it as freaky, I believe, actually. But if your observations can influence subatomic particles, well, atomic particles may, are made up by subatomic particles, which make up atoms, which makes up you and me. So it literally means that our observations of each other, how no matter how minute, can have influences to how the matter in another being performs. Anyway, if that doesn't interest you, remember you can still shop on tspaz.com. Um, read my review. I'm not going to go into my science paper from 10th grade, but uh, I wish I would have known all of this then because it would have made my case that I got an F for even stronger. Yes. The paper was called Religious Misconceptions and Scientific Jokes. And uh, 
You can hear what that was about if you read my review, Amazon item of the day for 9-21-16. Next up today, I want to remind you, you can support this entire community by shopping at the TSP Business Directory. That's at tspbiz.com, or it says Business Directory on the website, and you can click on that. Today's uh, sponsor of the directory is Mobility Enabled. They're an inbound marketing firm owned and operated by U.S. Army veteran and loyal audience members since the Jetta days. Mobility Enabled focuses on content marketing and SEO strategies. So if you're trying to get your website listed in Google and other great things like that, check out Mobility Enabled. And if you want to be uh, promoted on this, on this show and on the directory, consider becoming a supporting member of the directory, tspbiz.com. Uh, next up, let's talk about our song of the day today. This song is called Infinite. And I don't really get exactly who the guy behind it is. He's got a YouTube channel called Built by Titan. The actual person is out of the music industry, having worked with uh, major record labels and American Idol winners and stuff like that. And the, uh, the, the, the songs he has have different vocalists put into them. He's kind of like an independent producer um, on YouTube now. And again, the song is called Infinite. It's also uh, like subtitled Unsung Heroes. The reason I'm playing it for you, though, I do think it's kind of a cool song, and I think that uh, will, uh, the lyrics will resonate with a lot of you. But the way I found it is actually pretty interesting. So I get an email a couple days ago that said, I just made a big purchase on Amazon through T-Spaz that you should get credit for. I just wanted you to know so you can check, you know. So I'm like, holy crap, what'd you buy, you know, because it was a pretty big purchase. So I bought two cameras for my two sons, or teenagers. And uh, they, uh, they, they're doing independent, you know, multimedia production, and that's what they want to do. And I'm encouraging entrepreneurial behavior in them. Here's the link to one of their videos. So I go to this video, and it's some of you on Facebook have probably seen it by now. It's a video of their trip to, uh, to um, Dominican Republic uh, trying to capture the kind of the essence of the place. And it, it's just... Fantastic. Now I'm going to say straight up, this this song, while a good song, and, and having like a good sound to it, is not my style of music. This is the style of music that 20-somethings bounce up and down to in a nightclub with lights flashing all around. It's not as bad as some of that stuff, but it's that style of music, and that's that's not me. But I still really liked it anyway. But for the video that this young man put together, it is a stellar choice. So what I'm going to suggest is you'll hear it now, but to get the real effect, come to the site, click the link, go watch his video using this song. And because there's an original producer behind this, I'm also going to put a second link to his channel. Um, again, it's called uh, Made by Titan, and I'll put a link to his channel so you can see all his stuff. He's got some pretty cool videos. This one, his video of, is just like a graphic Right, but he's got some with like storylines in them and stuff like that. And again, it's all this kind of techno dance stuff. That's you know, it's. I, I want to be fair. It's not for that style. It's as good as it gets. It doesn't go too extreme with it. It's not like your your head's gonna hurt here in a second when I turn it on. You'll be like, oh, okay, I can deal with that. But 
you guys that like the music I usually play, you'll get what I'm saying when you hear it. And some of you younger people are like, about time Jack got with the fact that it's 2016. Hey, man, I'm an old guy. What can I say? Anyway, hope you enjoy it. Please check out the video. The, the channel for these young folks that are doing this great multimedia work, it's called Ultimate Insanity. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Depressed, 
Lonely in the bully to the lovers in distress The ugly in the beauty to the sick To the poor, to the tall, to the short To the black and to the white To the left and to the right To the godless and the holy To the rich down to the lowly The queen 